Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Hey, welcome uh, to Eastlake. We're so glad that you're here. Welcome to those of you watching online on the uh, live stream or whatever. We're glad that you're here. It's good to see people in the building. Last week was a bit of a, a sketch one uh, and uh, the roads are uh, so much better and we're so thankful for it today. So thanks for coming back. Uh, today we're concluding a series called Known. It's part four. Uh, it's a series on community. And we said that at the beginning of the year, it's a good kind of start the year sort of series. As, as you've probably done in your life, you take some inventory on kind of where you're at and how things uh, are, are fitting with your schedule, how things are fitting on your waist. And you've made some adjustments and uh, lifestyle stuff, your gyms and, and eating and all that kind of stuff. And, and one of the things that we said could use an adjustment or a refresher or uh, attention to detail would be how you are known and known other, know other people. And it's helpful for a couple of reasons. One, on a, on a personal standpoint, standpoint is the world becomes more automated, our ability to make things more personal becomes increasingly valuable. We said this from like a, even if you're not really religious, I think that this series is helpful for you because life is getting more and more automated. And one thing, one of the things that will never, AI will never replace is that personal to person to connection, that, that piece. My wife and I are, are traveling uh, after the service. We actually take off and we're staying in Portland tonight at a hotel. And they texted me this morning and they said, hi, this is Cynthia from Homewood Suites or whatever. What time are you planning on getting in tonight? And I was like, hey, Cynthia. And, and the response, I treated it like it was a human. It's not a human. I realized that after the second text comes back. Um, that's just their way. And they've now assigned personalities to these things. And, and so anyway, that's, just, that's just, you know, it's fine. It's, I figured it out though. But um, as things become more automated, uh, the more personal you are, that your personal connections with other people, the ability to know and be known um, is only become more and more of, a, of an asset for you moving forward. And if, and if this was like a business seminar or like a personal self-help, you know, TED talk or something like that, there probably would be enough runway there to kind of make sense of an argument. Here's seven steps towards doing that. But that's not what this is. This is a, a series on church. So even though there are personal reasons to be able to do it, there are also, I think, spiritual reasons to do it. And one of the things that stands out to, uh, to me is if I had encouraged you, hey, uh, it's the beginning of a year. If you wanna kind of read through the gospels and look at the story of Jesus, there's four different perspectives on who he was and what he taught and how he interacted with people. My guess is, regardless of what you believed about the divinity of Christ, that you would be struck by his ability to connect and be known and know uh, other people. It's, it's inspiring. It's convicting, to be honest with you, about this, um, that not just because of his level of fame, but because of who he was, and yet he'd walk through crowds and, and he would say, somebody touched me. And he'd be like, there's so many people touching you. Yes, but somebody touched me with conviction. And you're like, oh my gosh, this ability to kind of sense that and know that. His questions for people were incisive. He looks at this man who can't get into this pool and he says, do you even want to be healed? Like what kind of a question uh, is, is that? And then, like we said last week, his interactions with Peter and some of his disciples were, were mind boggling in that they be, it feels like they were different people and they had a deeper understanding about themselves based on the time that they spent with Jesus. 
Peter is presented in many of the early gospel stories as this raw sort of uh, go all out there personality, the kind of person who jumps out of a boat because he thinks he can walk on water for a second, but then he has doubts. Uh, The kind of person who says one thing in the heat of the moment, but then he goes back on it the next. I'll never deny that I know you. And then he does it three times and one time to a teenage girl because he's so afraid of shame. Um, He's pulling out swords that cut off ears of of soldiers. I mean, he's he's just brash. He's just raw around the edges. And then if you only knew the Peter from the way that he's presented in the book of Acts as like this CEO of the church and somebody who would then write letters, first and second Peter to the church about suffering and making sense of this, you're like, that's polished Peter. Like what happened? What was the evolution of this? And, and I, I think one of the big things is that people begin to understand more about who they were based on the time that they spent with Jesus. And what if that could be true? For us, what, what if what if that was true uh, about you? And, and, and what if people understood themselves better because of the time that they spent with you? How inspiring uh, would that be? So, anyways, uh, that's kind of our our runway up to today and why we think today is sort of important. If if any of that interests you and you felt like, oh, that could that could. And I need to know more of that. Um, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketristatis.com slash talks. All of those talks are leading up to this uh, or download the app and figure it out from there on demand. Um, all right, but today we're concluding with part four and I titled today, Tell Me Your Story. Tell me your story. Um, I came across something recently that said, hey, it was like a Twitter, like, you know, kind of respond and, and see what you do. But what, what is a recent technological advancement that you didn't have growing up, but you don't think your kids will ever know life without. And people begin to kind of write something and you probably have something that jumps into your mind. And, uh, and I was kind of scrolling through there and, and seeing these things. And, and I realized that, that there's more on this list than probably I give myself credit for. This last week, my, my daughter, she's 15. I, we still drive her to school because she's, uh, the bus comes too early and she's just a nightmare if she has to wake up too early. So one of us, my wife or myself, drive her uh, to school. It's not that far away from her house. It's not that big of a deal, but it's kind of a big deal. I always pass kids on the way too. I'm like, you could be like him. Look how cold he looks, right? Good thing you have a dad that loves you. So she, she, said, uh, she said, I like going in your car more than mom's. And I, and I said, oh yeah? And she's like, yeah, your, your heated seats heat up faster than hers, which is a very bougie statement to come from a 15-year-old who currently doesn't drive. And I realized in that moment, like none of my parents' cars growing up ever had heated seats. That was an advancement that was like for the super wealthy. Like I was like, I don't even know if Bill Gates has that. That sounds crazy, heated seats. And now if I was to go around the room, how many of you guys have heated seats in your vehicles? It's okay, you can raise your hand. It's, it's fine, see? Yeah, absolutely. It's not even that big of a deal when a car dealer guy, salesman comes up and he's like, this one has heated seats. And we're like, of course, we're not the Flintstones, bro. Like, <laughs> of course, that's not even a selling point at this point. Do the back ones heat? That's when we're like drawing the line of that still feels like, well, that's kind of excessive. Like we'll get there someday. But heated seats, I mean, please, remote start, remote start. You don't have to like scrape your windows. You can just start it from your living room, make some coffee and then go out and you're ready to go. That's insane, guys. I never had that growing up. My parents never had that. That's crazy. Um, I realized that how, how, how dependent I am on this one recently. Uh, portable Bluetooth speakers. Oh my gosh, you can have music anywhere. Did you know that? We have like this little area in our garage that we do like these little workout things. And, uh, and I found I lift a lot more weights or think that I lift a lot more weights when there's music playing. <laughs> I think that Jim's have figured that out. And I 
have convinced myself that that's true. And so I have a little portable speaker and my dad got it for me a few years ago. It's a magnet and it's, it's supposed to go to a golf cart, but you know, uh, and so I've been playing stuff off that and she asked if she could borrow it for her classroom the other day. And I was like, sure, go ahead. I won't miss it that much. And I'm like, I'm just like, I'm just weak in the, I'm in the garage. Just like, what are these tens? Gosh, you know what I mean? Uh, it's awful. It's awful not to have this anymore. And, and I realized growing up as a kid, my parents never had Bluetooth speakers. That would have been signs from the, the Jetsons. What are we talking about? This is not happening. This is unbelievable. My kids, my daughter will never not know what life is like without a Bluetooth speaker option. I, I could go on. I, I mentioned doorbell cameras in the first service um, because we never had a doorbell camera and now we do. And I was like, oh, come on, that's really nice. And I had everybody raise their hand and like three people raised their hand. I think that they were just scared that I was going to know that they had a doorbell camera because like a security house option. But like, uh, like you know, it, that's that's something... You never think of, and my kids will probably always have that because you can get it for like under a hundred bucks now and you can know when Amazon drops your stuff off. I highly recommend it. Anyways, it doesn't matter. There's one thing though missing from this list that is like, I mean, a game changer. Guys, didn't have this when I was a kid. Cannot imagine life without it. And my daughter can definitely not imagine life without this. And it fits in your pocket. And no, I'm not talking about a smartphone, although that would be on the list, but it is an accessory to a smartphone. It's called AirPods, guys. It's called noise-canceling AirPods. Wireless, Bluetooth, noise-canceling AirPods. This is the universal symbol for, I don't really want to talk to you, right? This, is, this goes in, and this is the image that it sends to you to be like, I'm busy, right? I'm at a coffee shop, I, and I'm not interested in talking to you. We don't have a lot of public transportation in our area. Like, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not anti, you know, BFT, but I'm just saying most people, individuals, drive cars. But you go to, like, big cities, subways, trains, buses, whatever, everyone has these in. And everyone knows, I don't need to talk to you, or I don't want to talk to you with one of these are in. And you go to a coffee shop now, even, even here today, you have one of these in. And this one's noise canceling, so this is driving me crazy that I can't hear it. Now I sound fine. All right. Um, you have friends. You, you, base, you, you know where you're at in terms of your friendship based on the position of the AirPod when somebody approaches you or you approach them. You'd be like, hey, how's it going? And if the AirPod's still in and all they do is stop the music for a second, they're like, hey, how's it going? You're like, oh, okay, I'm, I, I'm, not, even, I'm not even worthy of them taking out their AirPods for, right? Or then, like, then there's the next level of friendship, which is, hey, how's it going? But I'm holding it right here to communicate to you. This is going right back in as soon as we're done talking. Hey, okay, okay, it sounds good. See you later, right? And that goes in. And then you have a few of these friends. You go, oh, they're here. Oh, you pull it out and it goes in here and you shut the little gate. And my goodness, guys, there's only about three or four people in my life that fall into that category, but they are headphone friends. In the age of earbuds, that's an, imp an, an impressive thing. The, the, and the distancing and, and what it's training us to do and the messaging that it sends. My wife is a, a teacher in the Pasco Studios got a high school. And in the high school, apparently they let them have these, which is wild. And she, say, she says, anytime I give them two minutes to like, I don't know, review your work or there's two minutes before class is out. Uh, you guys can just kind of focus on your homework and do whatever. It's instantaneous. It's all, everyone's got their earbuds in. She, she, she just... She goes, it's, it's very, I'm, I'm like the teacher and I'm just, all I see are white ears everywhere. It's, it's unbelievable how quickly and how isolating it can be in this way. And that's fine, but, it, but and, and I'm gonna continue to do it. I charge them to make sure I'm, I'm ready to go for our trip. But uh, there, there's a sense in which we've lost 
the art of getting to know the people around us, especially when they're strangers. And it's really, really awkward. And you all have a friend who's really good at getting to know strangers. And you're like, I hate being around that guy. Cause he's always like, Hey, how's it going, Mike? You know? And he's, and, and they're like introducing themselves to people, getting to know them. And then they want to draw you into the conversation. They're like, come meet my friend. He's, he's Mike. You know? And you're like, how do you know Mike? I just met him. And you're like, Oh my God, this is awful. How you doing, Mike? I'm so sorry for Carl, you know, Carl right here. My apologies for him. Uh, I, I kind of know him. I don't really know him. Uh, that's, that's like a hard thing that we, 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 we've lost this art of getting to know strangers. And why aren't people talking to one another? My guess is the reason that people aren't talking to one another is that we're bad at predicting a couple of things. One, we're bad at predicting how much we'll enjoy hearing from them. We think they don't look that interesting. <laughs> you know what I mean? If they were famous or I know them, then I'd be interested in hearing their stories. But for the most part, I don't think that I'll enjoy this. I think that I will dread this and I have limited amount of time and, and other things drawing my attention to. And so I'm bad at predicting how much I'm gonna enjoy being around them. Number two, we're bad at predicting how much other people wanna talk to us. Um, we, we think that they're not interested because they do the whole headphone in, barely out, that nobody ever tucks it away. And so I, I just don't think that you're interested in talking to me. Um, we're bad at predicting how much we're gonna learn from people oftentimes. Um, we, we, uh, we, we surprise ourselves uh, sometimes. We'll, we'll go, we find ourselves accidentally into a conversation and be like, man, that person's really interesting. Of course they're interesting. They're a human being with like all kinds of different perspectives and different ways of growing up that you didn't grow up and have different biases and different um, heritage and different uh, everything. It, it's amazing how much you would learn. And then finally, we're bad at predicting how quickly others will want to go deep and get personal with us. We think it will be generally service level. And as soon as we open up a door, it's amazing what it is that you will see as a result of this. There's a, um, an Instagram account that I uh, follow and I've mentioned it here before, but it was a while back and I asked my wife if she remembers me talking about it and she doesn't. And so therefore I just, by extension, believe that you wouldn't remember me talking about it either. So I'm good to go, I think. Um, but it's called Humans in New York and it's an Instagram page. It's followed by millions. So there's probably a decent percentage of you that have, have followed this before, but it's essentially just somebody who's uh, captured the stories of random New Yorkers. Uh, but when they when they tell their story, they tell it in the first person on this Instagram account. And I just pulled up one of them um, this week. Oops, is that, there it is. Um, and, uh, and they're always, you have to kind of go into the uh, more, you have to push more because the story is a lot longer than that. But they're always about kind of the same format. And some of them are, are funny. Some of them are insightful. Uh, some of them are interesting people. Some of them are not interesting people. Um, and some of them are, are, are powerful. Some of them have stories that like you wouldn't agree with and politically or, or uh, morally or whatever else. I mean, it's all, it's all, it's just a spectrum. It's just random people. And they're not trying to, it doesn't feel like they're trying to push an agenda. It's just like, here's random humans in New York. And these are the people that have their headphones and that you refuse to, or aren't willing to, or uh, just accidentally can't run into. And here's their story. Here's the thing behind them. And it's brought like this deep sense of humanity. And, and for me, it's, and I don't live in New York um, and I'll probably never meet any of these people in person, but um, just seeing them tell their stories reminds me in, in a big way. It seems like if you give people the chance to tell you their story, they'll oftentimes take you up on it. 
Um, and I, I'm pretty sure none of them are being paid to be a part of this. I do genuinely think that they're real people. Um, oftentimes their username isn't attached to uh, what they're doing. And so it's not like they're, oh, well, they're only doing this to gain followers and do this like self-presentation thing. Because we've said that human beings are, are super prone to self-presentation. We love to present versions of ourselves, But only oftentimes when we think that there's some sort of a feedback or a payback for it. Like if I do this, then I'll get followers or how many likes can I get? And that just scratches the niche that, but th- there's nothing here. Like this is just them being them. And so I, I picked one uh, just to kind of read through it randomly uh, for us. And here's, here's what this one, so this was, uh, I think, two weeks ago, or January 10th. So uh, it says this, my first end-of-life patient was a 97-year-old man. He had a much younger girlfriend. She was 74, uh, but they loved each other so much. Back when their spouses were still alive, the four of them had been great friends. They would double date together. And when their spouses passed away, the two of them became a thing. Surprise, surprise. Every day she would come over for lunch. I'd always cook a little meal for them. I'd prepare the table. I'd lay out my little candles, my little flowers. And as soon as she'd arrived, I'd put on music and dim the lights. Then I'd leave the room and go wait in the bedroom. They would cuddle and snuggle. And the beauty of it was, even though he couldn't control his fluids at that point, she never minded the smell. Her love for him was so great that they would still kiss and all that good stuff. When the doctor said that it was time for him to go to hospice, he said he didn't want to go. He told them that he wanted to come back home and die with me. I was with him in the end. My patients never die alone, never, ever. One week after his passing, I was hired by his girlfriend's family. She had terminal Alzheimer's and I ended up staying with her for seven years. I fell in love with her. We were family, just family. She used to be a tap dancer. We'd sing together and if she didn't feel like singing, I would sing. Even near the end, she always knew when something was wrong with me, uh, she always knew that something, when something was wrong with me. When I wasn't being the Gabby that she knew, she would always know. When the doctor said it was time for her to go to hospice, her children said, we want her to die with Gabby. In the final days, she wouldn't eat. She'd lock her jaw, but she would always eat for me. One night, I could see the fright in her eyes, and I knew it was time. My patients never die alone, never, ever. So I climbed under the covers with her, and she passed away in my arms. It's powerful. And I, and I, and I read this while I'm making coffee or while I'm waiting for my kid to get out of basketball practice or whatever. And then it's like you realize in that moment, like the drawn, the drawing, uh, the centering of like humanity in that moment, like the, the perspective that it just kind of changes all the things that you're like, I'm stressed about and I'm so, I'm so anxiety prone. I'm so worried about how these things come together and worried about this, worried about this. And, and, you know, look at the calendar for tomorrow and what I got the deadlines this week. And then you read something like that and you're going, I'll just... We're just trying to make things work, man. We're just trying to keep going. We're just trying to, you know, look, discover what it means to be human. It's a powerful sort of thing. It's, it's amazing when you ask people to tell you their stories, the things that they're willing to tell you in the way and, and what it does for them. I, I read uh, recently a phrase out of that Brooks book that we've been kind of, I've been working through as kind of an inspiration for this series. And he writes that you can't know who you are unless you know how to tell your story. So become good at telling your story. You can't really know who you are unless you know how to tell your story. That there's something that happens when you physically put words to your story and begin to say it out loud and make sense of what it is that you're trying to say. Now, an example of this shows up in scripture in a very, very powerful way. It's captured in Luke chapter 19. Uh, It's gonna be verses one through 10. Uh, and it's a story about a, a guy named Zacchaeus, and we're going to read this uh, together. Jesus uh, entered through Jericho and was passing through. Uh, this is Jericho at this point seemed to be a place that you passed through. Um, Jericho was a place at one point, we remember the walls fell down on this, but now it's just a pass-through town. And you've been to pass-through towns. Ritzville is a pass-through town. Nobody goes to Ritzville. You pass through Ritzville. Ellensburg's kind of there too, but 
unless you go to Central. All right. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy, which feels like, a, like you didn't need that second part because the, the thing that we know based on if you, you know, grew up in church and you're kind of familiar with this sort of thing is tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is always doing this. He's hanging out with people. And the common critique that he gets is he's willing to put up with tax collectors and sinners, a separate category up and under themselves, uh, despised um, uh, people to tax collectors. And, and, and it makes sense. Even in today's society, we're not like, super pro tax collectors. Like if you work for the IRS, you've probably come up with creative ways to tell people what you do at parties, right? It's not like I I work for the IRS and everybody's like, cool, man. Everybody's like, oh, all right, well, you can leave or whatever. But uh, in, in this era, tax collectors would be hired by the Romans to collect taxes appropriate with people's level of wealth and level of income, which they're so far away from Rome, they wouldn't know. So in order to, and they didn't have great paper trails. And so what they would do is hire locals. You know people, you know who's really rich, who only looks like they're rich and who's poor, but is actually rich. You're gonna go and you're gonna appropriate the appropriate amount of taxes. We need to get $100 or something per person. If you wanna do 120, then you can pocket the rest. And it became a very, very susceptible to all kinds of greed and all kinds of uh, stuff. And so tax collecting was a, a bad thing. One, uh, you got wealthy in the process, but also you're kind of a betrayer of your people. You're a traitor to the Jewish uh, people. And so uh, that's why they're like super against it. And it's noted that he's a chief tax collector, meaning he was over tax collectors. He's the ones that kind of set the rules for all of this, meaning he was really wealthy and he's the worst of the worst. Zacchaeus uh, in this, in this is not painted in a great way. And anybody that would read this back then would be like, I, we know who we're dealing with this, someone who's absolutely despised. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So we're dealing with somebody with little man syndrome who's also very wealthy. Okay, here we go. Uh, so he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Jesus invites himself over to this man's house, uh, which is a uh, like a big deal. Anytime that uh, place uh, that people would dine together, there was sort of an affirmation of peers that took place when you shared a meal with somebody in your home. Um, in public, you could interact with different social stratospheres, like the rich could hang out with the rich or, or, the, or the poor. But one of the things that was so unique about the church early on was that there seemed to be a breakdown of social stratospheres within like rich people worshiped with poor people. That didn't make sense for them. We don't do this. That's not our society. You know what you were born into. Don't try and be too much and don't try and condescend too much. Like hang out with who you hang out with. Um, and in this way, he is, uh, Jesus is criticized because he's going into the home of a chief tax collector. Doesn't he know who he's dealing with? How dare he validate his position or his responsibility or what he does to the public by, by accepting, and not only accepting an invitation, but Zacchaeus would have never had the audacity to invite Jesus over. So Jesus doesn't allow that opportunity. He says, I'll invite myself over. That's the crazy thing about this story. Zacchaeus would never have said, Jesus, you should come to my house. That would be preposterous outside of his mind. But then Jesus does this. He says, come down immediately. I must stay uh, at your house. And then he goes on, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look here. In, oh, so, yeah, yeah. And this is verse seven. So that, that's the, a piece of it. Oh, sorry. I, I, I skipped one part. Verse six says this. 
So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. See, that's the, that's the problem. Is Jesus accepted this? He's, he's, he's refused. Maybe he doesn't know, but I can't imagine that he doesn't know. He just doesn't care about social paradigms and, and how things are supposed to work around here. He's gone and decided to eat with him. That's verse seven. And now look at what happens in verse eight. There's a massive jump here that doesn't seem to make sense. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Lord, look, or look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. There's a massive transition there between seven and eight. And if you're reading this kind of as just an outside observer trying to make sense of this, this would be one of the passages that you go, there must be something here I don't understand because that's not how life works. Uh, people don't go from verse seven to verse eight easily. Um, and and let, me, let me explain a little bit about this. We're gonna work backwards uh, from eight up to this. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is kind of affirming his, his uh, or going against the critiques of, of why are you hanging out with this guy? Of course, this is who I'm supposed to hang out with. These are the people who need help. This is the kind of broken individual who recognizes he's broken, who would never have the audacity to invite me over. So I have to invite myself over. Jesus would constantly say, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I came to, came to save those who are lost. And so he's affirming, I'm not denying that Zacchaeus isn't broken. And I'm not saying that he's perfect in this way, but this is who I've come for. This is a part of my message. And then today salvation has come to this house because the son, uh, this man too is the son of Abraham. This is a big statement. So uh, there's a way to read this and be like, oh, this man's generosity then brought him salvation. So if you give enough, then you're saved. But that's not what he's saying here. He's trying to say this, this generosity is a sign of some sort of a deep change within this individual. That something took place within Zacchaeus's heart issue that caused him to do this. There's a, there's a change. There's a salvation. There's, a, there, there's a, a rescuing of this that has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. To be a son of anything is to be character, characteristically epitomized by that person's essence and aura. So uh, when, when Jesus criticizes the son of Satan, they're trying to say he, that, he, that, that, that kind of thing is in him. Uh, in this way, a son of Abraham, what do we know about Abraham? Abraham was one of the first individuals, the, the father of all, you know, father Abraham, this father of many nations who God calls into the desert and says, I want to make you into a great nation. Look up at the stars of the sky, see if you can count them. Look at the grains of the sand of the seashore. I'm going to make your descendants like all of this. I'm going to bless you so deeply and so greatly, not because of anything that you have done. That's such a critical component of Abraham. Abraham, you've been such a good guy. Let me reward you. That's not what's at play here. He pulls a random guy out and says, this is what I wanna do for you. You don't have to do anything in return except leave everything that you know and walk into the desert and have faith that I'm gonna do this for you. And I'm going to, and this is the key part of the Abrahamic covenant or the blessing of Abraham. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to the world, that you will leverage your wealth for the sake of other people, that you will ask and look for opportunities to do something great with your stuff for somebody else. You, there's, there are opportunities of generosity that are, are going to be available for you that are not gonna be available for other people who do not have the financial capacities that you do. And you're gonna take advantage of that opportunity. You're gonna stewardship it well. So what is he saying in this? Today, salvation has come to this guy. There's been a heart change within him. He is truly a son of Abraham. He has been blessed with incredible wealth. Some of it may be ill-gotten, I don't know, but He's using it, he's using it, he's seeing it as something, as an extension of an opportunity to do something good in the world. He is a son of Abraham in that way. Now, go backwards a little bit more. 
look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. I'm gonna readjust my lifestyle moving forward. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, if I've ever done the whole thing where Rome expects me to make sure I get a hundred bucks out of them, but I take 120, 140 and I pocket the rest. If I've ever done that, I'm gonna pay it back four times the amount, which goes above and beyond what the Jewish law system said, where if you steal from somebody, you pay it back and then you do it twofold. So if I take a hundred bucks from you, I, I have to pay you back not only that hundred, but a hundred bucks for your, your, your uh, pain and suffering as a result of this. I'm gonna do it four times. He's going above and beyond the standard way of doing this. He's a fr- and, and, and he, he's recognizing like part of my job is gonna be true. Like we benefit from the, from, the, from the extension of Rome, being a part of the protection under their arm and, and we benefit from their road system. There, there are things about my job that are justified, if it, but there are parts of my job, the job that could be unjustified. And if I've ever done anything like that, I'm gonna pay that back four times. This is a powerful deal. But how do you, but the biggest question that I have and the biggest issue, so that makes sense of kind of some of those other phrases, right? The biggest question that I would have if I was you and, and, and I'm me and I, I've had this question too, is how do you go from verse seven to verse eight? Because that doesn't make a lot of sense. Zacchaeus, come down, I'm coming to your house. And it's almost as if, at first read, it looks like he jumps down from the last branch, lands on the ground, and then has this to say. But I wonder if there's a little piece in there that probably isn't written in there that is safely assumed. When we watch movies and come across a little like cross dissolve piece where there's like a little bit of music where something comes across the screen that says sometime later, and you're left to kind of fill in the blanks about what took place during that time. Conversations were had, stories were told, food was eaten, things were said. Sometime later, and like a right? And then we get to verse eight, where this kind of a declaration takes place. And I know I'm reading into this, and, and, and that might be just me being like, I don't know, Brent, like, like let's not make stuff up. I, I, I understand that, but I think it makes the most sense for this sort of a reading. And I don't think it's out of bounds to kind of look at it in this way. I think what probably happens in this moment is this, in this sometime later, is that Jesus invites a guy like Zacchaeus to tell him his story. And perhaps for the first time in a long time, Zacchaeus is presented with an opportunity to make sense of his story. Because previously, there's no way somebody like Jesus with the authority and the religious thing would ever come to his house because they would refuse the invitation to do so. And more than importantly, Zacchaeus would never have the audacity to ask it. But all of a sudden, somebody who's got a religious angle of things is sitting across the table from him and Zacchaeus is being invited to share his story. There's something that we learn about ourselves from being able to piece together a narrative about where we came from, who we are, what made us what what we are currently, what we believe, how we came up, how we came to... Uh, get this job, the things that we tell ourselves to be able to sleep at night, how we deal with the criticism of, of people who call us a traitor to our country, how I deal with increasing levels of wealth, but diminishing levels of opportunities to experience happiness with others as a result of it. Yes, I have money, but money can only do so much. And I, I realize it's about people and opportunities and things. And that feels like the more that I get, the more distancing I am from avenues to be able to explore that as an option. And Jesus is given this invitation to this Zacchaeus character to tell his story. And Jesus seems to be someone who listens. 
And, and I don't know if Jesus offered him advice. I, I mean, there, there might've been some of that. And I'm, I, I imagine that Zacchaeus would be a type of person who every once in a while would pause and be like, am I boring you? Is there anything you can tell me at this? Is there anything there? But more importantly than any of that is, G, I think that Zacchaeus felt like he had somebody across from him who genuinely wanted to hear what he had to say and genuinely loved him for himself, not for what he could get out of him, uh, not for his performance in, in his workplace or his, his, his job or anything like that, but just a genuine sense of love and being asked to tell your story, that space and that freedom to be able to do this. I think that his ability to kind of piece together the narrative of his life is what led him to the spot to be able to say, I'm gonna, you know what? Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna cut my lifestyle in half. And if I've ever done anything wrong, I'm paying it back fourfold. To make these massive major decisions and I think it's powerful too, because a lot of times when you read even like the humans of New York stories, you see them come up with their own solutions based on, an op- based on having an opportunity to be able to share their story. They come up with what they know they ought to do because you've done that. You've sat with people and you feel like I'm lost and I'm broken. And they've looked at you with such intent and such love and, and, and they, they, you, you have the freedom to be able to tell and you know that they're not judging you. They just wanna be there for you. And halfway through, you know what you need to do. And it was just a matter of you being able to have the space to be able to tell the story. It's like therapeutic in your own way. You begin to kind of piece the pieces together. You're like, I know what I need to do. Thanks so much. You've been on the other side of that too. You've been the person who called the person and invited them to coffee. They look like they were going through a hard time. They posted something. You're like, ah, I just need to do something with you. You feel like there's something out of whack. Something, and you sat across and, they, and you, all you did was allowed them to talk and they talk forever. And they go, at the end, they go, thank you so much. You've been such a great help. And you're like, this is what I've done right here. That's the extent of my abilities. You're so welcome. And I paid $5 for a coffee, right? That's, that's what I've done. All I've been able to, uh, the only thing I've offered is, is exactly this. So, so listen, what do, we, what do we do with this? Listen, you can't know who you are unless you know how to tell your story. So ask people to share their stories and provide them with the space for people to do this with honesty. Hannah Arendt um, is a philosopher who wrote a great book called Human Condition. It's fantastic read. In it, she quotes a guy named Isaac, an author, uh, Danish author, Isaac Dennison, who writes this, all sorrows can be born if you put them into a story. All sorrows can be born if you put them into a story. And that, that, that's so true. This is the invitation for these people to put things into a story and to be able to understand exactly what it is about themselves that they need to understand and believe. Now, Here's the other piece of this that is, I think, uh, important. Is yeah, on, on a personal level, on a practical level, um, I would hope that we could be people who create this for others as, as an act of how do we know and be known by other people. We create places that, for, and we ask people to tell us their stories, and we we we, we do this and not trying to offer advice, but listen. But then also, as I was kind of thinking about this. I think that this has an aspect to what I believe prayer is for us as well. Um, And I'm I'm saying this as a pastor and as perhaps your pastor and from a very like distinctly Christian perspective. So if, if, you know, if you're not religious, then you can pass on this. But this is what I think is a big proponent of what I believe 
happens with prayer because prayer oftentimes is categorized or in our minds, we say prayer is me saying, God, this is broken, help me fix it, right? My marriage is broken, my relationship with my kids is broken, uh, my uh, anxiety is broken, my, my person, my depression, my this, I, I need some, I need help in this. And I, I think that those are all like legitimate. I think that Jesus, when he talks to his disciples, goes, God knows what you need. Um, but he, you present your request to God and he is the God who's not gonna, he's not gonna give you stones and sticks when you're asking for food, right? That's like not what a good father does. And so, so prayer is absolutely a request-based thing. But something beyond that, I think, is an opportunity to be able to tell our story. That what if, what if there's a part of prayer that was telling your story to God in the same way that he is that friend who allows you the space to, for you to make sense of yourself and where you came from and what you need to do. And he's there uh, loving you unconditionally and uh, caring for you and really wanting your best future involved advice, I guess, when you need it for sure. But um, somebody who is uh, allowing you to write your own story and, and come and understand yourself better sort of as a result of this. And we tell ourselves stories all the time. You're not, even if you're not religious, you tell yourself a story. In fact, in that Brooks book that I've been working through, um, he says uh, this, that we talk to ourselves at a rate equivalent to speaking 4,000 words per minute out loud. So at the rate at which we talk out loud, imagine 4,000 words per minute. That's the story that you're constantly, you and I both are telling ourselves about ourselves. That's how our brain is, or this little mass that's inside of your cranium is telling yourself stories about yourself. And he says this, people who address themselves in the second and third person, meaning not first person. First person is I, I do this, I, I, me, me, me. Second person is you. You, you, this, this, ex, this departure from self, this externalization of not, it's not just me anymore, but you, like you, come on, Brent, you know this, you, you know better this. And then third person, third person is Brent. I, I speak in third, Brent needs to do better. Brent needs to work on this, right? Which kind of sounds like, that sounds psychotic and crazy, ready? Um, but listen, he says this, people who address themselves in the second and third person have less anxiety and communicate more effectively. And if you're able to self-distance like this, you absolutely should. And what does this do? What is this self-distancing? What is this second, third person sort of piece that goes along with this? Like perhaps I, I, I think it's a, a, a big piece of this is this externalization of self to say, when I'm only telling myself a story, when I use the I pronoun, when I, when I make it first person a lot, I am reinforcing the idea that I am alone in this world, that there's no accountability to anything else beyond this, that everything is an internal, internalization of myself. And so the story that I continually tell myself at 4,000 words a minute, no, no less, is that I'm alone. And that's probably not, healthy. And, and you know this, you, you know that I, when you begin to say, I'm, I'm dumb, I'm an idiot, I'm, I'm this, that, that that's that negative self thing that's like, no, you need to break away from that. And when, as soon as I can externalize something and say, you know better, you know better, why am I talking in this? I'm, I'm saying that there's something outside of me that perhaps even in, in the story that I tell myself and the language that I use to do it, I'm also affirming that there is something that is out there beyond me that there is a God or a thing, or a, if you're a deist, a, a, a whatever, something that, is a, uh, that I find myself accountable to, that when I tell my story, I'm also aware that there is a, uh, a thou watching over this and, and navigating this and, and watching me begin to tell my story in a very, very powerful way. And, and I think that that's, 
Man, that's, that's a big piece of prayer that I think goes unmissed. Sure, there are questions there, but also, God, can I just tell you my story? Can I verbalize it? Can I put it out into words? My mind's racing. It's not just, I'm, I don't wanna just keep it in here. I wanna verbalize, I wanna pray out loud, and I wanna tell my story. And at sometimes I'm gonna come and I'm gonna say, is this ridiculous? Am I, and I'm gonna ask you for advice. But other times I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna talk. And at the end of my prayer, I'm gonna say, oh man, I know what I need to do. Thanks, God. And he's gonna be up there going, I didn't do anything. You know what I mean? In the same way that you've done it. But the fact that he's there, the fact that he's there as an observer makes all the difference in the world in the same way that you. So practically speaking, may we be people who tangibly do this interpersonally, but then also may we not only look at this and be like, that's a good way to get to know people. May we also go, but this affects my spiritual life as well too. That God, forgive me for those times I've taken advantage of the situation. I've continued to act like I'm the only one doing this, that you're not interested in this or whatever. But let me, in the space, in the course of prayer, meditation, whatever I want to call it, begin to speak these things out loud as I make sense of my story, because at that point then, I'll know a little bit more about myself and who you've created me to be. So may we be the type of people who uh, are the kind of people that everybody else understands themselves a little bit better based on our presence and our being around there. And may we begin to see God in that sort of a way too. May we be known uh, and know others accordingly. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for us. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.